of all the people uh, today who would affirm that, uh, you know, that heaven and hell are realities, are real places, if everyone out there that would agree to that, I would suggest that um, many would understand that it is the worst of humanity that would go to hell. Uh, however they would define worst, it's for the worst of the worst people. That's what, that's what hell is reserved for. So maybe uh, murderers, perhaps uh, rapists, abusers of other kinds. Maybe uh, it would be you know, the money-loving, corporate, greedy execs who've trampled other people on their way to gaining riches and so on. Uh, most would affirm that it's the worst of, of humanity that would go to that, this, this place called hell. It's the dirtiest, the slimiest people. It's for them. However, there is a lesser known and lesser understood path to hell also. And in some ways it's more dangerous and more slippery because it's not as well marked. It's not as obvious. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, as he's known, said it like this. He said, there's a clean path to hell as well as a dirty one. You will be lost if you trust in your good works as surely as if you trusted in your sins. There is a road to perdition along the highway of morality as surely as down the slough of vice. The Bible's explanation of what is damnable offense is quite different from how most people would think of it. It includes even self-righteousness which is often found in those who would outwardly look clean, those who've tried really, really hard. Some of whom most people would just assume they would clearly go to heaven, look how hard they're trying. Well, as we started into Luke 15 last week, we saw two parables that explained why it is, why it was that Jesus spent time with people that were on the dirty path to hell. And we saw that it was because God seeks and delights in saving lost sinners. Now, that's why Jesus was spending time with them. That was his mission. He came to seek and to save these. And so uh, now, as we come to verse 11 of chapter 15, we have another parable. It's the parable often known as the prodigal son. And so Jesus continues in this parable to explain why it was, to answer the objection and explain why it was that he was spending time with and receiving uh, sinful people, dirty people. The prodigal son, the younger son in this parable, uh, clearly represents this group. Uh, those who've just squandered their lives in reckless and sinful living. And again, in this parable, we will see this person being found. But this parable doesn't end there. Uh, somewhat surprisingly, it goes a little bit further and reveals a second way of getting lost. According to verse 11, this parable is not just a parable of a prodigal son. It's a parable about a man who had two sons. Uh, there's a brother and there's a father that are uh, important parts of this, of this parable. 
And as the story moves on from the younger brother and his interaction with the father to the older brother, the story reaches its climax. And it's clearly aimed at the Pharisees and the scribes who were despising Jesus and God for the fact that Jesus was spending time with these tax collectors and sinners. You remember that from back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Uh, This is what occasioned these three parables. They cannot figure out why Jesus would spend time and eat with and welcome these uh, despicable lowlifes, these sinners, these tax collectors. So it's clearly aimed at the Pharisees as we get to this older brother at the end of this parable. They're they're despising of Jesus, receiving these dirty sinners, while they themselves have no idea that they're lost. They cannot see they are estranged from God. Happily, though, gladly, this is not just a parable that shows two different ways of getting lost, two different paths to hell, a clean and a dirty one. It also has within it a reminder of the path out of it, the path of return, the way of redemption, which is through repenting and casting oneself on the grace and the mercy of God. And this is, of course, the path that we all must travel if we are to find forgiveness, if we are to find salvation. So I'll invite you to turn in Luke 15 to verse 11, and uh, we'll read through to the end of the chapter, and then we will walk through this together. So I'll invite you to read with me Luke 15, 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. 
Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So this shows us these two paths to hell. One dirty, one clean, and that there is one path of return, one, one path out. So we're just going to, as we go through this, just divide this up into the three main paragraphs you see probably in your Bible if you have an ESV. Um, and so the first, the first point of our outline is the dirty path to hell, prodigal living, that's verses 11 to 16. And then in 17 to 24, we have the only path of return, repentance, and the grace of God. And then in 25 to 32, we have the clean path to hell, self-righteousness. So, uh, first, the dirty path to hell, prodigal living. Notice again in verse 11 that this story is about a man who had two sons. So these are the main characters, the three main characters that make up this parable. Now as we dive into this story, uh, let's just remind ourselves of a couple of, uh, key, uh, a couple of keys when it comes to interpreting parables. Uh, back in July, when we were in chapter 8, uh, seems like yesterday, I know, uh, back when we were in chapter 8, um, we looked at the purpose of parables, and uh, so we won't rehash all of that, um, it's, it's online if you want. Also, we do have um, on our website under Wednesday Night Audio, there's not a lot there, but there is one on explaining parables in general and how to interpret them. If you're interested, uh, you can find that there. Um, but but when, when we talked about this, even last when we were in chapter 8, uh, we noted this definition of parables. Uh, to put it as simply as possible, a parable is an illustrative figure of speech made for comparison's sake, and specifically for the purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson. So they're illustrations, essentially, to teach us something about the kingdom of God. And so when we read parables, we're typically looking for one or two main points, uh, main lessons, and uh, we don't assign uh, an, an allegorical representation to every single detail, every single point within an allegory. We can get quite lost uh, or within the parable if we assign meaning and representation to every little detail. Um, but having said that, um, it's clear in this story that this, this younger son, this prodigal son, uh, represents, does represent the tax collectors and the sinners uh, that were being complained about back in verse 2 by the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, the father, another of the main characters here, uh, and his action represent God and his grace, perhaps we might say even in the person of his son, Jesus. So that's the father. And then the older son, quite clearly, I think, we'll see this, um, is a representation of these scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling at what's going on, at the grace that's being shown to these uh, sinners. So in verses 12 to 16, we have the younger son and his actions being described. He approaches his father, 
And he demands for his share of the property that's coming to him. That's what he asks for. In other words, I want my inheritance. So this is bold. This is defiant. This is dishonoring. Uh, This is wicked. This is, I don't care about you. Uh, You're as good as dead to me, essentially. I just want what's coming to me eventually, and I would like it now, and I'm out of here to do what I please with it. That's the attitude. And in the parable, the father acquiesces, he he gives, he divides the property, and he gives this to him. Uh, Now, I would just say to get hung up here on whether or not this was wise of the father in this story to do, I think that's, I mean, really, I think that's besides the point. Uh, Just for the sake of the parable, for the sake of the point that Jesus wants to get to here, um, the father just gives him the inheritance, and so again, we're not pressing every detail. If this represents God, we might think that's weird. Why, you know, why might God do this? Um, well, just generally speaking, uh, this, this father in the story represents God. But at some point along the way, every illustration uh, trying to depict the ways of God is going to fall short or break down at some point. Um, so just this is generally his actions in the story represent uh, the ways of God in his mercy uh, but for now, this, this boy, the son, he's, he's given this property and he takes off. And in many ways, this is a picture of what uh, sinners do. Uh, taking the good things that God has given to us in God's providence and uh, taking them and running with them, running headlong into rebellion. Taking the very breath in our lungs that God's given us and heading out to blaspheme Him, to do whatever it is I want, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, blowing all good things He's given us on ourselves and in rebellion to God. That's precisely what the younger son here does. In verse 13, he gathers all his stuff, so likely he's he's liquidated uh, the property. Perhaps even uh, to do this quickly, it suggests he's done this fast, uh, not many days so he's, he's quickly turned this into cash, probably selling it cheaply, adding further insult to his father, and he's out of here. He takes off. He's in a long, long ways away. He's in a faraway country. And it says there he squandered his property in reckless living. And this is what the word prodigal means, to live recklessly, lavishly, to squander one's stuff, live recklessly. And so we picture here, I think rightly, the person who's just, uh, he's just partying. He's just going out, living for the moment. Uh, he's spending it on whatever seems good to him. In verse 30, the older brother is going to say he spent this, uh, some of it on prostitutes even. So he's living this party life, spending it on self-gratification now. This is what he wants to do. He runs headlong into this and he does this very thing. But then something comes up he did not plan for, did not want, did not expect, and it's a severe famine. It's a really bad famine, and he winds up being in need. And so he, it says he hires himself out. That means he, he clung to this citizen. Uh, may not have even been hired since, since he, nobody gives him anything. It seems like this guy doesn't even agree to pay him. Uh, this, this, the word there is he, he clings to this, this, this citizen of this faraway country. And it seems as though this guy says, just get, go out and feed the pigs. Just sends him on, trying to get rid of him. Go out and feed the pigs. So he does this. He goes out. He's, he's in there with the pigs. He's so hungry. He's so longing for food that he even wants to eat the food the pigs eat. These pods, it says. Which is not a valid source of nutrition for any human being. 
Uh, I've seen some say it would be if any nutrition, these carob pods would give just tiny bits, not enough to really sustain a human. Some say we can't even digest them properly. It would be of no use to us anyway. The point, the point is he's sunk very, very low. He's got nothing left. He's incredibly hungry. He's squandered everything, and there's nothing here for him. And the, the Jews that would have heard this parable originally, they would see this as a picture of, of an unbelievably wicked sinner who's squandered everything, who deserves what he's got coming. This, this young man who's dishonored his father so badly, he's taken everything, he's dishonored his own nation, he's left the people of Israel behind, he's gone on to this far country, he's out with the Gentiles, he's spent it in lavish, reckless lawlessness, and now he's out with these pigs, which under Old Testament law were these unclean animals, and he's so desperate, he even wants their food. This is how bad it's gotten. It is low, this is kid is a long way, he's a young man, this young man is a long way from home, it's a miserable, wretched condition, and it's representative of those who, like the tax collectors and sinners, had wandered very far from God. There was little pretense in these people about their condition. They were unabashedly living in rebellion against God. They were a long way from home, if you will. If God and His holiness are up here, these people are very obviously way down here, and everybody can see it. It's not hard to to tell at all. They're not even really trying, it would seem, to, to be good or to measure up in any way. They've just given themselves over to this sin. And it's evident to all. This would be the dirty path that Spurgeon mentioned. And in one sense, this is the story of humanity, running away from God into headlong rebellion, squandering everything he's given us. It's what Paul describes in Romans 1, descent into greater and greater lawlessness. And while some people cover up their depravity somewhat, or try to at least, as we'll see, uh, you know, some people, that they don't descend as low as a, a human person is, is capable of, there are some in whom depravity is much more clearly evident. Those who have made no pretense of trying to live uprightly. For whom it is simply a life of high-handed rebellion against God, full-blown embrace of depravity and, and living however they desire. This is obviously a very common reality, and it's something that I think is easy or somewhat easy for religious people to see and to recognize this is not okay, to recognize that this is not good. And indeed, it is a very serious and tragic reality. What these tax collectors and sinners had done with their lives and the way they had lived and the way they had rebelled against God was very serious. It was a wretched thing. We don't need to look far to see such sinners in our society, those who would run headlong into sinful living. Uh, These people are everywhere. We live in a world that celebrates the actions of the prodigal son. And I I would 
suggest if, if people were able to sustain that kind of living financially, more people would do that, would just give themselves to this fully, unashamedly. Everywhere, there are those who would take everything that's been granted to them by God and His providence and His grace, they take it and they use it to rebel against Him. They think they have earned this all on their own, that God has given them nothing and done nothing for them, not realizing their very breath is in, their, is in God's hands. And of course, there are many still, obviously, who murder others who, while being restrained from maybe committing the act of murder, are filled with hatred toward other people, vile hatred toward others, raging against other people. We live in a world that celebrates, celebrates murdering unborn children, that's moving more and more towards trying to broaden that out to include other people, born children. And it will just continue to broaden. People we can get rid of. This is our world. And maybe you're listening now. And maybe, maybe you're on this path. Perhaps it's a path that you desire to go down. Maybe you have in your heart this desire to just cut loose. And to just live however I want to live. And maybe there's something that's hanging you up right now. Something stopping you. Some circumstance. Perhaps it's mom and dad and their leash being under their roof. But perhaps your heart is there. And you're just waiting for that moment to cut loose. And to be able to run off and do whatever it is you want. If that's you, oh, that you would see See the ultimate bankruptcy of such living. That life spent in unfettered pursuit of self-gratification, of worldliness, it promises so much to us. It promises fulfillment, but it is empty. It simply cannot deliver. We see this over and over again in the Scripture. Perhaps you've felt it when you've given into it before, and you realize at the end of it, it really wasn't that fulfilling. This kind of life, it promises much, but it's a lie. It's a lie. It cannot deliver. It's an idolatry that leaves one spiritually bankrupt under God's condemnation. And it might even just ruin your entire life as it does for the prodigal, as it, does, as it has for countless other people who've just given over to their cravings and desires. And so this is a, a warning if, that's, if, you, if you know that's deep down what you really want to do, this is a warning. This, of course, this is one uh, of the pathways to hell. The outright rejection of the Lord, the squandering of all good gifts. Uh, the good news is there is a way out. And Jesus again shows this to us in, the, in verses 17 to 24. And so if you're on this path in your heart, this you know, you, you want to go that way, and you're just waiting for the moment you can reach out and go for it. May you see the, the, the goodness 
of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God, the goodness of coming back to Him, of, of coming to Jesus, whose arms are open. And so, uh, number two in our outline, uh, the only path of return, repentance and the grace of God. So look at verse 17 again. We'll read that again. But when he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In these verses, we get a a picture of repentance. It says he came to himself. He snapped out of it. He suddenly realizes what's going on. He can see this clearly, what has just happened. He could see that even the lowliest person in his father's house had a lot more than he had. He'd ruined everything. He could see his condition. The lowest in his father's house had a much more exalted position. So he planned to go back. And he would go back acknowledging, notice he acknowledges his sin before God and before man. And he's going to go back without presumption with his father. He's not going to go back demanding anything from his dad. He knows, he says, he's forfeited any right to be a son. He has no rightful claim any longer. He knows this. He would simply ask to be made a servant. He would throw himself on his father's mercy and grace. Uh, Last week, we talked about repentance, and I mentioned that repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. It also results in a change of action. It involves agreement with God, uh, understanding and agreeing with the truth of God about our sinfulness. That what God says about me is true. That His verdict over my soul is right when He says I'm guilty. It's realizing this, agreeing with this, and then it's a turning from this. And that's really what we see here. He snaps out of this. He sees it and He says I'm going to go back. I've done wrong. He confesses His error. He agrees. He knows. He's forfeited His rights to sonship. And his only hope is to, again, cast himself on the mercy and grace of his father. That's his plan. There's no hiding here. He's not sugarcoating what he's done. He's not demanding further rights. There's a humility in this. And so the previous two parables, if you think of last week, the lost coin and the lost sheep, uh, they uh, emphasize really, one of the emphases in there is that God is seeking out sinners one of the emphases that comes across here is, um, is just repentance, showing what repentance looks like. Repentance is in the other parables too, but it's, it's shown a little more what that looks like here. And look at verse 20 with me again. He says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and his shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There's astonishing uh, kindness. Astonishing grace in the father's actions here. While the son is a long way off yet, it says, he saw him and he felt compassion and the father runs out to meet him. I'm sure you've heard this, and a lot of people say this, that uh, it, was, it was, uh, would have been undignified for an older man uh, in that culture to run like this. Um, I, I've looked for the sources of where that comes from, and I don't know how we know this. <laughs> uh, and there some, seems to be some debate of whether that's true or not. Um, and so I, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. It's possible that maybe this was... Uh, a shameful act he did. And if so, it's just highlighting even more the joy of his father. He's willing to embrace and bear the shame of his neighbors and whoever would have seen him him in order to go run and and, and greet his son. But regardless uh, of whether or not running in and of itself was shameful, clearly there's an indescribable joy here. He's running down the lane to meet his son and he sees him and he he hugs him. Literally, he, he falls on his neck And he embraces him, and he kisses him, and he welcomes him. He feels compassion within for his son. And the boy begins to bring his confession of how he sinned against God and he sinned against his father, but he's not able to finish it. And the father interrupts and turns to a servant and says, Quickly, bring the finest robe, bring a ring, put it on his finger, probably a signet ring, Give him sandals for his feet. Kill the fattened calf that they might eat and celebrate. For his son who was dead, as good as dead to him, is now alive. He's back. He's lost. He is found. The father's grace and mercy to the son who deserved none of this. The father could have said, look, fine, you can be a servant, but you are going to get You can live in the barn, you're going to get minimal food to survive, and you're going to pay back every single thing that you have squandered. I think if we saw that happen, most of us would say, that's fair, that makes sense. In fact, that's what the son was even expecting, that kind of a response. But graciously, the father fully restores the son. He brings him the finest robe that they've got, he gives him the ring, likely the signet ring, which would be a symbol of authority in the, in the family. He's not made a servant. He's made a son. He's fully restored into the family. And as with last week, there's joy on the occasion. Uh, to kill the fattened calf was a big deal. They would specially feed this animal for a big celebration. And usually it would be uh, one of the religious feasts. And so this is a big deal to to bring this cow and to slaughter this cow. And in verse 24, he gives the reason for this celebration. For this, my son was dead, and he's alive. He was lost and is found. And so they, they do. They begin to celebrate and throw this big banquet, this party. And so we see in these verses the repentance of the son, and we also see the grace, and we see the joy of the father. And this is the way home for sinners. God is gracious and delights in finding sinners and delights in bringing them home. And the path back 
for the sinner comes through repentance and through recognition that our only hope is the grace and mercy of God. Uh, Some, as they uh, look at this parable, they would see the slaughtering of the fattened calf uh, as depicting the death of Christ. Um, And I think that might be pressing a little much, some of the details, but I think it's also understandable to see, to see why people would, would read this into the, into the parable. We know that the means by which God can be just and yet justify wicked sinners is because He has sent His Son, Jesus, the one who's telling this very story, this very parable. He sent Jesus to take upon Himself the wrath of the Father for all sinners who would believe in Him, who would repent, who would trust in Him. And we even see in this parable that the Father in the parable provided what the Son needed to be restored to full sonship. He gave Him the robe. He gave Him this ring. He provided Him with sandals. And likewise, God the Father has done all that any sinner needs to be fully restored. And he's done this by sending Jesus to bring about redemption, to purchase redemption, to earn a righteousness that he can give us as a robe that's ours by faith. And by faith in Christ, likewise, God has adopted us, brought us into his family, restored us. We are called sons of God if we're believing in Christ. And again, we see in these verses, Jesus is telling us that God does this with joy. This is the joy of heaven. We saw this last week. This isn't a grudging thing. Uh, He delights to show mercy. We saw it in Jonah there when it was read. I knew you were a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. It's a remarkable thing. Again, we're, we maybe get used to saying it, but it's a remarkable reality that prodigal sons can return. We see it in this story. We think, yeah, if the father was like, no, that's okay. You can stay away. You, ha- you, took, what, you took your share. Be gone. We would all say, okay, that kind of makes sense. I, I can understand that. How much more would it be right for God to do the same to every, every last one of us? It's remarkable that God would seek And he would save, and he would rejoice over this. And this is the hope for each one of us. This is the hope for all mankind. It's the only path that any sinner can travel to come home, to be forgiven, to be redeemed. In Jesus' day, many who were on that dirty path to hell... They were seeing this. They were recognizing their need. They were recognizing their lostness. They were coming to their senses. They were being awakened as Jesus was telling them of the Father's grace. As he was welcoming sinners home and holding this out to these sinful people, many were coming and they were repenting of their sin and they were trusting in Christ. This is, again, the only hope for all sinners, for you, for your neighbor, for anyone. And it's a good hope since God delights to do this. And so know it. Know it that no matter how badly you've blown it, 
God delights to save sinners. See in the person of His Son your provision for the forgiveness of your sins, for your redemption, the righteousness that you need, yours by faith in Christ. And then as we live in this world that where there are a lot of younger brothers around us, uh, let's keep this in mind, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and there is a way back for these people, a way to the Father. Up to this point in the parable, we basically have an elaborated version of the previous two, of the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. There's some, a couple of emphases that are maybe unique here, but generally it's, this, it's the same thing so far. We have something that is lost, it is found, and there is great rejoicing. But this parable continues, and it adds an element, it climaxes actually, with this new element that's added, that the previous parables, two parables, didn't explicitly have. That there is another path. And that is the clean path to hell, self-righteousness. So in verse 25, the focus now shifts to the older brother. And so look at verse 25 again. Now his older brother was in the field, and, and as he came... And drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back, safe and sound. So the older brother has been diligently out working, doing his duty. And he comes near the house, and he hears the celebration. He hears music and dancing, and he wonders what this could possibly be. And so he asks this servant who is nearby what's going on. And the servant tells him, your brother's back, your father's received him, he's safe after all, and he's sound, and so your father's celebrating. And then we see his reaction, the older brother's reaction in verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. So you can see now, I think, clearly, how this pictures the Pharisees and the scribes. Right Back in verse 2, who are angry, grumbling that Jesus would receive sinners. And here's this older brother now, furious. And then continuing in 28. His father came out and entreated him. Do you hear Jesus? Consider all that we've been through. Do you hear Jesus entreating the Pharisees and the scribes, warning them over and over again? They're on the outside of the banquet. Continual warnings to them. Even now, even in this parable, entreating them. The father comes out, he entreats the older brother, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He's outraged by this. You can see here this legal mindset, this legalistic mindset of this brother, of this son. I have served you. And you haven't given me anything, not even a 
goat for me and my friends to celebrate my faithfulness to you. Nothing. And then not even being able to call him his brother, he says, this son of yours, we know this, this move, right, parents? <laughs> he says here, this son of yours consumed, devoured your property, wasted it all. He didn't even try to be good. And now he comes home, and you just, that's it? You accept him? You kill the fattened calf? We're throwing a dance and a party here about this? You're not going to make him get down in the dirt and grovel before the whole village, trying to get back into your good books? You're not going to make him earn back everything that he has squandered of yours and just prove how sorry he is? You're just going to welcome him in like this? This is the attitude of the self-righteous Pharisees. They weren't necessarily against sinners coming back. But boy, if you're going to, you've got work to do. If God's ever going to accept you, if we're ever going to approve of you, you've got a lot of work to do. You first clean yourself up and show us how serious you are about coming back to the Lord. And maybe then, God and us and we will accept you. It's an understanding that we earn our place before God. Um, Robert Stein, in his commentary in Luke, has a quote that's a bit lengthy, but I think it's worth, worth reading in full. He says this, The full acceptance of repentant publicans, the tax collectors, and sinners, before they could achieve a holy lifestyle and track record, contradicted their understanding of piety. So he's saying there, that, that, he, that, that a sinner would just be welcomed in before they've you know, attained some level of righteous living, contradicted their understanding of piety. Stein continues, They believed, the Pharisees, believed in repentance and forgiveness, but the immediate acceptance of such people as righteous was difficult to accept. Perhaps also, despite the claim that the law was a delight, many of Jesus' opponents saw it as a burden that all people should have to bear. To receive forgiveness freely, apart from bearing such a burden, made their own burdensome keeping of the law seem unnecessary and worthless. Rather than feeling sorry that the outcasts missed the joy of the life of obedient faith, they were angry and they, that they could receive salvation without having to bear the burden of the obedient keeping of the law. Do you see this? They've toiled miserably trying to do what God has said. It's difficult. It's hard work. And nobody who didn't even try is just going to suddenly come in and be made a full son. This doesn't make any sense. All my effort is for nothing. This is the attitude of, of a legalist. And you can see why grace to such a sinner is so offensive to such a person. And maybe, maybe to you. I've labored for years, and it has not been fun. It has been hard. And now this guy just comes in, hasn't tried, and gets to be a full son. Not a chance. Get in line. Work your way up, son. So grace is an offense to this system of self-righteousness. What they must see, what they don't see, is that they are likewise lost 
the older son is not in good standing with his father. He's not in a good, right relationship with his father. He thinks he's earning his father's love. Right? He, he's, he, you haven't even given me a calf. I should have had Where You should be killing the fattened calf for me because of my faithfulness. Look at how much I've done. I should be celebrated for my faithful labor, not this clown. This is, not, this is not how his father works. Verse 31, And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting, that could be, it is necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the father says, Son, all that's mine is yours. It's right here. You have not wandered as far, but just enter in. Just come to me. It's all right here. It's yours. Come. And so here we have this older brother, whom verse 28 says was angry at this, and he refused to go in to this banquet. This is reminiscent of what we've seen In chapter 14, of the Pharisees, whom Jesus says will be left on the outside of the Messianic banquet. Here we have this older brother refusing to go into the banquet. He's on the outside. The son is out of touch with his father. He's not in good standing with him. He's furious about what's going on. Seeing that all his efforts at being good have not resulted in the reward he thinks that they should have. And he's furious. Self-righteousness is deadly. Many people feel this way today. Those trusting in their own efforts, they know they're not perfect, but boy, have they tried. They've tried very hard. And then to the such people, the concept of just grace, pure grace, that would fully restore a wayward, sinful child to a right standing with God based on no effort of their own, no doing of their own, but purely by trusting in Christ and recognizing their sinful condition and repenting of that. that It comes through this. They've done nothing. They're fully restored. It's offensive. It's a stench in their nose. But as the Bible makes clear, by works of the law, no man will be justified in his sight. We cannot do enough good to make up for our sins. Self-righteous people like the Pharisees and those of today, we need to measure ourselves against God's standard, against His laws, not other people. We don't measure ourselves against the prodigal son, the younger brother, we measure ourselves against God, against His standards. And then we find out that it's when we do that, through the law comes a knowledge of sin. We realize we have much more in common with that younger brother than we thought. We're not as good as we thought. And we can see we can't possibly make ourselves measure up to the holiness of God. That we do, in fact, fall way short of the glory of God. Maybe we've not 
run off into just licentious living like some have. But when we measure ourselves to God's standard, we still fall short. And moreover, any efforts of ours to bribe God as if we, we were good enough for Him is exposed for the wickedness that it is. And again, we see that we have much more in common with the younger brother than we thought. And if we don't see this, we'll be left on the outside of the banquet, despising God's grace to prodigals. The story, the parable, ends with a question of how the Pharisees would respond. Right? It, just, it just ends, they're out in the field, the father makes his last appeal here to the older brother, and it's over. It's just left. And it clearly is aimed at the Pharisees to say, what are you going to do here? How will you respond? Will you come in? Will you rejoice or not? And while we don't know how each of the, the, the Pharisees that Jesus first addressed us to, we don't know exactly how each individual responded, but we do know the Pharisees in general continued in their opposition to God and eventually put the Son of God on the cross. As MacArthur puts it, it's as if the older brother there in the field murders the father. Legalism and self-righteousness are powerful evils. It is God's grace that makes a repentant sinner fully restored, a fully restored son or daughter. And it's amazing. It's the only hope that any person has, has, and it's a very, very good thing. Whether we've blown everything and we've lived that profligate life, and we can easily identify with the prodigal, or if we've kept ourselves relatively clean from such external vice, everybody, everybody, as a child of Adam, starts out on that path to hell. And we must all come to our senses and see our need for God's grace. Those of you who are young, young people, uh, kids, um, I just want to talk to you for a moment specifically. I've, I've sat where you've sat. I've gone to church week after week. I grew up going week after week. I grew up behaving well. People looked at me and would even say how good I was behaved. And of course, I owned that title. I thought, yeah, I am something. I've sat there. I've gone to church week after week. I've, I've tried to be good. And I would just plead with you, do not compare yourself to other people. I could always find other people that I was better than, and I felt a certain comfort in that and goodness about myself. And perhaps you've escaped a lot of those vices that others have fallen into, and that's a good thing. But do not compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to God and to His standards, to His glory. 
And if you do, you're going to see that even if you've not run off into all manner of external sin, you will see that you fall short of God's glory. You will see that God is looking to the heart. He's looking to your thoughts. That things like just dishonoring parents, you know, that, that, that attitude towards your parents, the way you've talked to them rudely, that that is a serious sin before God in His eyes. That maybe you've not done some of those bigger wicked sins, and yet in God's eyes and God's standards, you are still sinful. And so see this, embrace it. Let the law do its work, expose you as a sinner. And then would you see Jesus as your hope? See the crucified, risen Christ as your hope of salvation. Don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to God's standards. See your need for Christ. Repent of your sin and trust only in Jesus. Do not despise such grace. Of course, it's true for all of us. No matter what our paths have been, we all need God's grace and mercy. We compare ourselves to Him and His standards. And we see our need for grace. And whether we need saving from licentiousness or from self-righteousness, or perhaps some twisted mix of both. We all need God's grace and mercy. It's the only path out. And it's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing that we cannot try to earn our way back, because we can't do it. We would only be fooling ourselves, as the Pharisees were. So do you see the kindness of God in these verses? For sinners like us and others, do you see your need for this mercy, for this kindness from God, this grace from Him? Do you desire this mercy, this kindness for others? Even the most wretched and the most lost, the dirtiest, the most vile, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would grasp these essential truths. May we not be fooled into any sort of self-confidence or self-righteousness, thinking that we somehow are good, that we just need a little help maybe, that our efforts are what matters most. God, may we see that Christ is our only hope, our only, and may we make Him our only confidence. And would we rejoice in this? Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this reality. These are good things. Help us to let go of self-righteousness and rejoice in the righteousness that comes by faith that You have provided for us in Your Son. May that be our joy. May that be our song. And as those trusting in Your grace, Lord, may we view obedience to you, not as a legalistic weight, but as a joyful freedom. Lord, I pray that you would make it our delight. May we be those who rejoice with you in the fullness and in the freeness of your grace in bringing sinners home. We give you praise. We thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.